0: Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interviewed Jeanette DeSalle Zorneman, Master Teacher and Director of Instruction with Kena Academy. Jeanette and I had a chance to sit down and talk about one of the truly great classic works, Dante's Inferno. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded in Falls Church, Virginia. Jeanette this is such a fun opportunity to sit down and talk about one of our favorite texts Dante's Inferno so let's just get right to it let me start with this question to you a reader might be a little hesitant to pick the Inferno up why well it takes place in hell you clearly think it's a good read though so and uh you think it's a wonderful ride why why read the Inferno hmm
1: that's a good question I think uh Dante's written a real masterpiece here. The Inferno is an incredibly astute observation on fallen man. So many of his characters seem familiar and known to me as a reader, and uh, the portraits are layered and dense, and he often achieves these portraits of these characters in just 50 to 60 lines of poetry. It's pretty incredible. I think he achieves a lot in The Inferno, but I think one of the two greatest achievements is that he uh, gives his characters um, testimonies a kind of seductive but self refuting nature. So the reader and the pilgrim have to listen carefully to what the characters choose to say about their lives and what they choose to omit. And they don't always tell the truth, so it's hard to tell when they're deceiving the pilgrim and the reader, when they're telling the truth. Uh, it's hard to tell whether they are deceiving him consciously or they are self-deceived themselves. So in any case, this means that uh, we, the reader, and the pilgrim have to work hard at unraveling these various testimonies. And that's a tremendous piece of craftsmanship on Dante's part, I think, to, to hold both at the same time, the seductive character of it. But the uh, veil has to slip a little bit so that, the reader and uh, the Pilgrim can be disabused of what the character is saying.
0: So so you mean by seductive, n- not only the powers of seduction that a character has internal to the story uh, towards others in the story, uh, but to Dante the Pilgrim and to the reader too, right? Yeah.
1: Okay. yeah. And I think the second great achievement is his portrait in the Inferno of the really sad and kind of mysterious part of human beings that reaches for and clings to self-destructive patterns of behavior, even when the obvious fruits of those uh, patterns of behavior are very negative. So he's uh, very committed to the notion that human beings are choosing freely what they want, and at some ultimate level, these individuals who live in the Inferno have chosen to be there and want to be there, and that's a bit shocking, both to the pilgrim and the reader. So I suppose in answer to your question, the Inferno is a very insightful lens on our humanity, our fallen humanity for sure, and that alone makes it worth reading and studying. But it's also an incredibly complicated and extraordinary piece of artistry that I find engaging every time I look at it. There's always something new to learn, Dante loved playing with um, numbers and poetic devices, and he laced a lot of history uh, and myth throughout the piece, and it's just uh, very pleasurable to engage the text on those many different levels.
0: Well, l- Let's look at one piece of the arrangement that he sets up as a masterful poet, as a masterful artist. When the, when the Inferno opens up, we find Dante and he's lost, right? Or at least he seems lost. He's, uh, he either uh, doesn't know where he is or he's in a dream. Um, what's the best way for us to understand that state that we find him in at the beginning? And um, what does that have to do, with, what does that opening state have to do with where he is in relation to hell? Uh,
1: Dante's given his... Protagonist, his name and his biography, some of his biography. So it's not always crystal clear where Dante the poet leaves off and Dante the pilgrim picks up. But I think it's safe to say that Dante the poet was in some kind of trouble. We know some things about his biography for sure. He'd been exiled from his home city Florence in 1302, and the grounds for his exile were trumped up charges by his political enemies. He was actually out of town on an ambassadorial mission to Rome when they uh, tried him. And as a result, he was never able to return home. He spent the remaining 19 years of his life in exile, and it is a heartbreaking turn of events. He's actually not even buried in Florence. He's he's buried in Ravenna, Italy. And I think with all of our modern travel amenities and our Easy mobility. It's difficult for younger students to recognize how traumatic this must have been for him. Exile from one's home in the 1300s was fraught with pain. The exiled member uh, lost his home. He lost his property. He lost his community, his reputation, his livelihood. Um, he sometimes he lost his family. I, I know that Dante was separated from his family frequently. And in all likelihood, an exiled member would lose, uh, or his heirs would lose their inheritance. And in Dante's case, he had to travel from one patron to the next, always living at the largesse of a patron. He's like a beggar in a way, but a comfortable beggar for sure, but he was a beggar nonetheless. And you can imagine how humiliating and depressing this must have been for him. And at first he did attempt to solve the situation, just as other exiles would. So in company with other exiles, they made strategic plans to return either militarily or diplomatically. But it looks like by the time of 1307 or 1308, uh, there's not going to be a return, it's over. And he has to face this reality that at least for the foreseeable future, he's not going home and scholars, believe that it's about this time, 1307, 1308, that he began to compose the Divine Comedy. And,
0: and is he um, r- relatively young or ebbing into middle age? He's born in
1: 1265.
0: Okay.
1: So that would put him somewhere so around was, 42, uh, yeah, 43 years okay. old, something like that. Right? All right. So he's. Um,
0: and he's married, right? He's married with children. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. He married young. Scholars are divided on how many children he had. Some believe he had three sons and a daughter. And like I said, I, th- I think he separated frequently from his family during his exile. So he sets the narrative time of the Divine Comedy in the year 1300. It's set in the liturgical week that celebrates the passion and resurrection of Christ. And this actually precedes his exile by two years. It's a very clever trick. It gives him the ability to use his impending exile as a part of the story. In fact, his exile gets prophesied on multiple occasions throughout the comedy. Uh, he so I think he's in trouble. I think he's he's suffering when he starts writing this, this story. Let me read the opening lines of the comedy for you. They're really beautiful and poignant. I'll read just the first two and a half tercets from Chardy's translation, since that's the translation I used as the basis for the guide. Okay. Midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. How shall I say what wood that was? I never saw so drear, so rank, so arduous a wilderness. Its very memory gives a shape to fear. Death could scarce be more bitter than that place. And these words speak of loneliness and darkness and perhaps a bit of sloth, a sense of being way off course in his life, but only realizing it midlife when he's about 35 years old. So remember, this is set in the time, in the year 1300. And he was born in 1265, so he would be 35, which would be the biblical midlife. He speaks of having awakened in a place he doesn't recognize, perhaps on the cusp of slipping into the inferno. He doesn't remember how he got there. He doesn't know the way out. He's full of panic and anxiety. He does spot pretty shortly after this uh, a mountain, he says, that is shouldered with light. And uh, he makes a run for that and thinks that he can escape the dark forest by climbing it. But these monstrous, savage beasts attack him and push him back down off the mountain and back into the forest where he despairs. So I think the allegorical sense is pretty clear. He fell asleep, so to speak, and he began to live a life he shouldn't have been living. And whatever behavior he's been engaging in has made him, I think, unrecognizable even to himself. He's in trouble and what kind of trouble the readers will learn as they make the journey with him. So this is a bit of a memoir, but it's also um, a bit of fiction too, this kind of a strange hybrid. And memoir is notoriously dangerous uh, turf because it invites the writer to cast himself as the put-upon but heroic character nonetheless. the comedy uh, is a memoir but i think dante resists some of these dangers by exposing himself as a weak often self-pitying fool who must suffer rebuke from his master not for not paying attention for fawning for missing the point for talking too much you know he's he gets in trouble for being silly and self-indulgent So he is a kind of epic hero, but he's a very fallen epic hero. So it's a a very different kind of character.
0: So he has a a companion along the way, really, uh, I guess you would call him a guide, and it's Virgil. Now, we, we know that Virgil and Dante lived far apart in terms of history, many years, centuries apart from each other, so there's no way they knew each other. So... Uh, you know, so we're we're kind of you know inclined to ask why? Why Virgil? Why of all the of all the mythical and historical figures that that Dante could have crafted into the story as his guide, and he crafts a lot of historical and mythical yes, things, you know, figures across across the Comedy. Yeah. Uh, in the Inferno, his guide is Virgil. Why? Why Virgil? Uh,
1: Virgil was a Roman poet, and he lived in the first century B.C. And he wrote one of the great epics of his time. It was called the Aeneid. It was named for his hero Aeneas. And Aeneas is a mythical Trojan prince who's escaped, survived and escaped the um, Greek assault on Troy. And he escapes with his son and his father and his household gods. And uh, by divine commission, he is ordained to establish the Roman Empire, what would become the Roman Empire. And along the way, he takes his own revelatory journey to Hades, which is in imitation of Homer's uh, character Odysseus, who takes a, um, a same, the same kind of journey. Virgil wrote the Aeneid, for sure, partly in service uh, to the myth of the founding of the Roman Empire, but the Aeneid is also a beautiful piece of poetry, which Dante had studied very carefully and had eventually, uh, and it did eventually imitate. In fact, Dante has Virgil remark in the Inferno that the pilgrim knows every line of the Aeneid by heart. Hmm. So along with Augustine's confessions, Virgil's Aeneid is the paradigmatic story of a spiritual journey for Dante. Hmm. And he, he revered Virgil, he copied him, and he made him his guide through the Inferno and the Purgatorio. Dante never read Homer. He, um, Isn't
0: that amazing?
1: Yeah, he received the stories of Homer through uh, other stories that incorporated those narratives. So what he knows about, say, Odysseus, he knows in the Roman story as uh, Ulysses. And uh, most of the characters he uses, he's, it's filtered through other other writers. So Virgil becomes his blessed friend and his... Companion through these travels, and he's he's almost like a father and sometimes like a mother even.
0: What do you think of the interpretation that some people hold that says that Virgil is uh, reason? He's standing in as reason or for reason. He somehow represents reason. What do you think of that?
1: Mm, I think Dante earns his allegorical meaning inside the literal meaning, and I think to reduce Virgil to a symbol is probably a mistake. He's, he's a complicated and endearing character of his own. He's flawed and limited. He's, he's sometimes unreliable. He's, he's human. He doubts. He loses his temper. He loses his temper with the pilgrim. He confesses. He gets outwitted. He gets outwitted by some demons at one point. But he's wise and he's affectionate. He's a father figure to Dante's pilgrim. the pilgrim makes a lot of stupid mistakes, and he gives in to his self-pity, and he even faints. And Virgil has to frequently correct him. And sometimes he corrects him too harshly and has to apologize. And I think treating Virgil as a symbol risks losing a lot of the meaning in his character. It's true, Dante is a highly symbolic poet, but he means his characters to have flesh and bone. In fact, that's why he uses so many historical characters instead of types. By giving his characters flesh and bone, he gives them particularity and weight and substance. I can hear these voices, you know, of the characters. I can hear Virgil chastising the pilgrim, and I can hear his bewilderment at the gates of Dis when he gets locked out. I can, hear, I can still hear Pierre's obsequious flattery of the man who put him in prison and tortured him. I can hear Guido completely buffaloed, you know he can't figure out why he's in the inferno and still puzzled why and how he got hoodwinked by Boniface. I can hear Farinata's bullying, and I can hear Brunetto's flattery and silly counsel to the pilgrim to seek out fame and fortune. These these characters are real. They have they have uh, they're more than symbols of something mm-hmm. else. They have character of their own that's that's worth paying attention to and listening to and getting to know.
0: And and all of those uh, specific characters you mentioned um, <clears throat> bring with them dialect, region, mm-hmm, history, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. events, things that they created or or things they were part of. So it's not just that they are they are genuinely or authentic, authentically real, and that they look and sound like human beings, but they are human beings with with all that stuff that makes for human life. That's right. Yeah. And
1: That's, yet he does these portraits in very. Uh, succinct uh, poetry it's amazing
0: another aspect of hell the the place that uh, Dante is making his way through with Virgil by his side is that it has uh, geography Mm -hmm. and uh, of all among the things that are difficult to get our heads around is what does hell look like and and Dante helps us. He he gives it uh, a real geographic look. Can can you give our listeners a description of hell's structure? You know, for example, what is a circle? What is a bulgia? What what is the the full plane or or or, or span of hell look like?
1: It's pretty complicated, but I can give you just a little bit of an introduction to it. The structure of the Inferno itself is a long cone that. Uh, extends from the wider opening on the surface of the earth down into the center of the earth at the cone's point. So Dante and Virgil are going to begin at the wide end and then circle around the edges down into the tip where Lucifer resides. And there are nine full circles of that as they pass down deeper and deeper into the the center of it. And each circle collects like-minded offenses. So they visit with like-minded uh, Offenders as they move their way down. Once they get to the eighth circle, however, there are uh, these, um, he calls them malabolje, um, and they're, they're little, he calls them evil ditches or evil pouches, and they're uh, ten smaller circles in the eighth circle of hell, and each of those has... Um, a bridge that passes from one to the next. So the only way to traverse across those ten Malabolges is by uh, taking these little bridges and uh, making one's way down there. Uh, the little bridges are like uh, overpasses on a highway and the sinners collect down below on either side. And at one point they, they discover that the bridge has uh, been knocked down and they have to, there's a bit of drama, they have to find their way to a different bridge and they get deceived by some demons and It's kind of a piece of dramatic excitement. Dante has to work out a lot of technical problems like this. He has to figure out how to bring the Pilgrim and Virgil to the other side of the earth. He has to figure out how to get them to pass through and into a different time zone. He has to work through um, the fact that there doesn't appear to be any natural light source in the inferno. So there are lots of challenges like that. And it's it's worthwhile spending some time with the students working out some of those technical and geographic issues huh. so they can imagine the space that the, the two characters are passing through.
0: Now, earlier, you were talking about um, where we first see Dante. And you know, he's lost. He seems to be in a dream, perhaps. But in any case, geographically where do we understand him to be at the very beginning of the inferno is he is he in hell is he on the outskirts of hell is he somewhere in between what what is
1: it no he's in the dark forest he's not inside the inferno
0: do we take that forest to mean here on earth or mm-hmm. is it on the surface the of the earth okay. yeah
1: so when he and virgil make their way they make their way down into this this ditch
0: do they encounter each other where? That in is the forest. In the forest. Yeah,
1: that one, when when the, when the pilgrim gets pushed back down by those savage beasts, he ends up in the dark forest again, really panicked and isolated. And then this form starts to um, form on the haze of the light that still lingers in the forest and uh, it's it's Virgil. Virgil's come to rescue him.
0: Well, let me ask one more follow-up question on that before we let it go. So, uh, is this different... And uh, should should the readers imagine something different, f- say from um, Odysseus's encounter with the shades? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like there he's he's well above Hades, and yet he's encountering the shades through a, a kind of a portal of sorts. So what do you think? This is different. Right? Yeah.
1: Well, there are a lot of differences between the two experiences, but the most important one is that the characters that. The pilgrim Dante is going to encounter have real substance, and I don't think that's true of the characters that Odysseus meets. They, he doesn't have much deep encounter with these characters. Same thing goes for Aeneas in his trip. This is a very significant series of encounters that the pilgrim is going to have. People, these people that he encounters, share quite a bit about their lives. I, would, I do, in terms of the geographic issues and right. uh, imaginative exercises, I really encourage the teachers who decide to do this text with their students to bring in good illustrations to help the students reimagine the space. I favor Michael Mazur's illustrations. They're modern, but they're not... Um, they're just very beautiful. He did these uh, for uh, Robert Pinsky's translation of the Inferno, and I think they're they're very lovely and um, worth looking at. But there are lots of different illustrations out there. Of course, there's Gustav Doré's uh, illustrations, and um, those are very stylized, but uh, but still worth looking at.
0: So you've you've indicated that, uh, that what the geography of Hell is, and the souls that are in hell are in all the different places within hell. And early on in the story, we see something like a, a sorting exercise where the different recent arrivals, the damned souls are assigned to, to different places in hell. So what's a good way to uh, get our arms around that is that simply a set of facts that need to be set in place so the readers then encounter different souls, different different layers of hell? Or, or is there something more significant to that, the whole sorting exercise?
1: Um, the poet says that each soul confesses to Minos, who then directs them to their new homes. And there doesn't appear to be any resistance on the part of the souls. So they appear before this judge who then uh, directs them to the place they need to go. In Canto three of the Inferno, we learned that the the souls want to go where they're going. They they long to be there. So I often think of Minos. I know this is a little a little bit um, a little bit shallow in a way, but it's also illuminating. I think of Minos as that guy who knows the directions to where you want to go, and. Uh, you know, he's, he's like the elevator man. He tells you what floor you need to get to to get to where you want to be. And so these these souls are not being dragged against their will to some space. This is where they want to be, which in a way is kind of scarier because uh, they're getting what they want and the thing they want is so self-destructive. Hmm. Is that what you're yeah. thinking about? No,
0: that's great. Um, the Inferno is only one part of the comedy and... Um, even within the comedy it is is a long and wonderfully various journey D- does dante learn over the course of this specific time the specific range of events that is all the ones that are in hell or you know does he change is this a is this a significantly transformative time for him if if that's a good term
1: In my estimation, he does change, and the most important thing he learns in the Inferno is not to give in to the self-pity and to give himself over to the allure of the offense. He has to look at these offenses squarely and honestly, and he has to reject them. And this is hard. It's especially hard in the earlier parts of the Inferno. Take, for instance, his responses to Francesca in Canto five and Pierre in Canto thirteen. He's just overcome in both those situations. And that has led some readers to believe that those two sins of carnality and suicide hold a special kind of um, temptation for for the uh, pilgrim. He's also pretty wounded by Farinata in Canto Ten. The he, uh, Farinata is the Ghibelline Politico, uh, which seems to indicate Dante has um, some... Some political sins to, to confess and to put aside. Fernanda also manages to use prophecy as a weapon against him. Uh, in this case, he prophesies Dante's coming exile. It's it's pretty rough stuff. The pilgrim is so downcast when he comes out of that interview. The encounter with Brunetto is an odd one. He thinks, I think maybe Brunetto's temptation to the pilgrim is to stardom, the easy way, the easy way to fame and fortune as a writer maybe or as a poet. It's, um, it's one of the really strange and rare occasions that Dante ignores Virgil. It's almost He acts as almost as if he doesn't know Virgil or who Virgil is. One thing he struggles with a great deal the deeper he goes down is the temptation to feast his eyes on this increasingly grotesque and dehumanizing spectacle he's encountering and this gets him into a lot of trouble with Virgil the the deeper you travel into the inferno the more like a kind of a backward of an insane asylum or a or a really tough prison it begins to look it's it's akin to watching a horror film that, that engages uh bad appetites for torture, torment. So Dante's got to learn to turn his eyes away from all this or risk losing some of his innocence. The, 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 the sense is that he could grow uh, hard-hearted to these spectacles and desensitized to what's, being, what's going on. And uh, that would be a disaster for him. So does he learn anything? Yes, I think he does. He puts aside the allure of the temptations that are truly tempting to him. And he finally rises above them. I don't want to give too much away, but in the last canto, 34, the reader sees Dante and Virgil pull off a pretty incredibly risky feat of climbing, and uh, without giving too much away, we do learn that everything that had seemed so truly important and real and uh, present just kind of shrinks from view for the pilgrim. The last lines of the Inferno are so beautiful. Let me just read those for you so you can hear. This is from Mark Musa's translation. Oh no, I think this is actually Chardy. My guide and I crossed over and began to mount that little known and lightless road to ascend into the shining world again. He first, I second. Without thought of rest, we climbed the dark until we reached the point where a round opening brought in sight the blessed and beauteous shining of the heavenly cars. And we walked out once more beneath the stars.
0: Hmm.
1: So these, these words produced so such a profound relief uh, for the reader, I think. This is when we know Dante is out of the really big trouble that landed him back there in that dark forest. And there's now great hope that he's going to survive. Yeah. So
0: relief's a great word there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such a, such a burden carried all the way through. So, but before he's out of there, he has to encounter, um, Satan. Mm. And in some ways, I think the readers are all, um, You wouldn't say they're looking forward to it in the sense that they can't wait to meet Satan, but rather they they know it's coming and it's it's part of the expectation and then the full ride of of, of going through uh, the inferno or or hell with uh, Dante and Virgil. So, but when we get to Satan, it it seemed kind of anticlimactic. You know, what are we supposed to do with that? How how should we understand that imagery?
1: Mm. It is a surprise. uh, I don't want to give away too much for the listener, but the portrait is surprising. I'll just give a couple of details here. He's locked in ice, for one thing. He has very little obvious physical movement. So he's not in the proverbial war room working out detailed plans for the destruction of humanity. It's it's a surprising portrait.
0: Nor is he on the roam.
1: No, he's locked in ice, yeah. I don't want to give away too much, but I will say this. I do think that the reader should pay special attention to the penultimate cantos, 32 and 33, where we meet Ugolino and Ruggieri. Hmm. Those have a great deal of um, importance, I think, to the pilgrim and to us. In a way, they almost act as a climax. But, uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: All right. So <laughs> now, uh, you know, I think a lot of our, our listeners, uh, um, actually almost all of our listeners are teachers. And sometimes the crunch of time in a school year means that we can't teach all three parts of the uh, the Divine Comedy. And it's interesting, uh, a number of teachers will choose to teach the Inferno only. But there are critics of that. People will say, oh, you can't teach the one without the other two. What do you say, is it still worthwhile to teach the Inferno if that's all you can get through in a school year?
1: Uh, Well, you know, the Inferno is part of a trilogy, and if you want the full journey, you've got to get through purgatory and paradise. But, you know, there's a great line from what Dorothy Sayers once said, that um, trying to grasp the divine comedy by just reading the Inferno is like, trying to grasp Paris by visiting its sewer system. Not, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but there's, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. On the other hand, a lot of high school programs don't have time for all three parts. I'm sympathetic to that, too, and I would never, ever criticize anybody for just teaching the first part. But I would encourage the teachers to spend some time studying the other two parts. It will make them better masters of the inferno. Dante often likes to read back into earlier parts of his trilogy, and that enriches the reader's experience. When I used to teach the Inferno, at the close of reading the Inferno, I would take them to Canto 30 of the Purgatorio, and that's where we see Virgil depart um, from Dante. it's, It's just a really heartbreaking and sweet scene, And it helps them understand how difficult it was to give up such a wise and tender father figure. And it helps them understand what kind of father figure he really was to the pilgrim. Hmm. Humanizes him in a very sweet way. And Dante, in that scene, puts the poetry of Virgil in the mouth of the pilgrim. And it comes in two direct quotations from the Aeneid that are very poignant and beautiful. So when we get to Paradiso and we see Beatrice relinquish her duties as his guide, it happens at almost the same point Mm. that it happened in the Purgatorio with Virgil. Dante loves to do things like that, to have a lot of symmetrical alliances like that from one part to the next. So I do encourage the teachers to um, to read the other two parts and, and study them. Dante was very deliberate in his Matters of Craft, and I think teachers would enjoy it and find it delightful study. Now, why read just the Inferno? Like I said at the beginning of this interview, it's just a remarkably astute, penetrating portrait of one aspect of our humanity, and it's Mm. it's entirely worth doing for that reason alone. Mm.
0: But as you just so beautifully laid out, uh, if a a teacher is going to be... a good guide of the craft that dante exhibits in the inferno she would do really well to be well versed in the other two parts too that'll just make her a better reader of the inferno and a better guide to her students and and all the teachers we, we should include we should encourage our students to go forth and read the, the
1: oh other yes two. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah that's great yeah.
1: Well, if we teach the Inferno well, they'll fall in love.
0: Yeah, of course. And they'll
1: want to know more. And that, opposite, that has happened a lot with my students. When yeah. they walk out, they go home for Christmas, and they would read the, the uh, Purgatory and the Paradiso yeah. and ask for it as a gift. You know, they, they wanted to see what happens next.
0: Sure, I, I've seen that happen. You, uh, time only allows for the teaching of a few dialogues, but the, the students who fall in love with it end up reading more dialogues mm-hmm. are the same with Shakespearean plays. Anyone with a, a big big group of uh, a big um, portfolio of writings okay let me ask you uh, I know you're not inclined to give away things uh, and you want the readers to, to come to the text fresh but give us a hand here give us some of the surprises we can look forward to in, in reading the comedy in other words um, give us a little preview of some of the the best plot twists or at least some that you would like to share with us and some of the poetic imagery that um, you know maybe we might not anticipate and and it would be really helpful to hear from you about those two things
1: well i've been trying not to give away spoilers so i'll share just a couple of I'll, I'll 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 share a handful of interesting features there are some dark comedy moments that are pretty delightful and refreshing for the reader the grafters, for instance, and the demons who police them—that's a surprising bit of black comedy. So that the students will recognize Tolkien's orcs in the behavior of the demons.
0: Just so uh, the one with the curly beard and, and yeah. all those guys. Yeah, yeah.
1: they have uh, Great some. Some commentators have said that uh, these demons look more like gargoyles from the cathedrals. They're they're a bit funny but scary. I think that works. And sometimes the poet just seems to know that I, as a reader, need a break. So he gives me a big glass of water and a short, watery excursion at Canto 26 with Ulysses' Canto. And that's at a time when I most need to escape the burning deserts. And he gives me an informative bird's eye ride on the back of Geryon in uh, Canto 16, I think, so I can get a better handle on the topography. Of the Inferno, I'm getting lost by the uh, by canto fifteen sixteen, and now he gives me this jig, this big high bird's eye view on the back of Jerion, so I can see this whole space below us. So he's very helpful that way. One of the most important and repeated images is that of inversion, and that plays a very big part in the Inferno, and it climaxes in the final canto. So I would just encourage the teachers to look for that. It plays out on many different levels. And I would encourage them to watch for the repeated imagery of sleep. Uh, The pilgrim wakes up from a deep sleep. We talked about this earlier. And he finds himself in grave danger. And sometimes when situations overwhelm him, he faints again. And Mm -hmm. he falls into another deep sleep. That's a continuing problem. And uh, for those of us somewhat versed in classical work, sleep is a spiritually and often physically dangerous place to be. I'm thinking here of Odysseus specifically. So... They should watch for this problem of sleepiness, inattentiveness, and the dangers of it. And I would also recommend watching for references to books and reading. Books can uh, change a life, for better or for worse, and I think that's on Dante's mind.
0: Well, those are all really helpful. And all of those examples uh, remind me of what... a great journey it is it really is a, an an odyssey even the inferno into itself is an, is a real travel and so uh, travels are exciting they're partly mysterious and and we the teacher would do well to help the students without giving things away to kind of alert them you know so something's coming or or at least be know that it's coming around the corner so that they don't miss it all right so how about this last question what are What would you say are the principal challenges we face as teachers of the Inferno? The difficulty of the the craft of teaching the Inferno. Can you you give us some heads ups?
1: Uh, Let's see, as in all cases of uh, imaginative literature, our challenge is to make the story come alive and to help the students enter into the drama, the narrative, so they can employ all their senses and enter into the story sympathetically. Uh, the biggest mistake I find with teachers of Dante is that they turn them into a theological text. And uh, it's a text that dishes out doctrine and moral platitudes. That's a, uh, a serious mistake they shouldn't uh, engage in. And sometimes they get, uh, because there's so much scholarly uh, insight in Dante, it's easy as a teacher to get so caught up in the scholarly weeds that the story Is lost for the students. So I would say stay away from theological platitudes, and really there just aren't that many pretexts in the inferno anyway, and steer clear of too many heavy burdens of too much scholarship. Mm -hmm. Scholarship is important. Dante holds uh, special temptations. You know, from the earliest copies of the Divine Comedy, his readers have always needed footnotes to identify the historical figures he's using and the students will have to employ those notes as well. But I would encourage teachers to train their students on the differences between the historical facts that are relayed in the notes and commentary. The commentary is not always reliable, and if you're using a translation that's heavy on commentary, the students won't get a chance to learn how to interpret the text for themselves. So the, the teachers the teachers need to provide the students with as many Opportunities as they can find to engage the text independently. This is the principal reason I chose the Chardy edition. He's very thin on notes, thin on commentary. He gives just enough historical notes that the students can keep up. Uh, I think Dante's uh, comedy, and Inferno especially, gives some very interesting lessons in how to read a book. Reading a book is a lot like reading life and reading people, and the students have a chance here to learn how to read these characters and what they're saying, and it's especially interesting in the Inferno because the characters are deceived so frequently about their own conditions and why they're there, And, um, and they are deceptive in turn. So the students have to learn how to become astute readers, of other human, of other human beings, and also of themselves. And this is this is a self-portrait that he's writing. Uh, in terms of scholarship, I think it's important that the teacher read plenty of scholarship uh, on his or her own. Especially, uh, reading different translations is effective. A lot of good translations will come with very rich notes. Um, Moose, I already mentioned him earlier. He brings some beautiful um, notes to his translations. And, um, but I give lots of uh, examples of this in my guide to, in the bibliography. There are several really wonderful digital guides online now. Universities have set up digital guides. Those are also referenced at the end of my guide, and those are worth consulting to. Some big scholars are uh, contributing to those digital websites
0: that's really helpful. Well, I'm jazzed. I'd like to, um, I'm I'm going to go back and read it again. And uh, I look forward to an opportunity to work through the text with somebody. And I think our our teachers and our audience are really going to benefit from this. So thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. You're welcome. This was great fun. Thanks. Thank you. enjoyed this episode of Classics. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen Tassel Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman your host for all of us at Keane Academy. Thanks for listening to Classics.